Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views this week and we're continuing our extrapolation into space but we are getting back to Earth this week. Not that we haven't been doing that a little bit. We're going to talk about Antarctica because Antarctica is probably the closest terra firma. I, yes, I promised myself I would use that phrase at least once during the show. The closest terra firma that, that represents sort of internationally shared um, land uh, on, uh, on this side of the atmosphere. And to help us with that is Ben Barlow, who's actually an attorney in the firm where I work. Ben Barlow is with Dunlop Bennett and Ludwig. Actually, he's, he and I started around the same time. Uh, I, I was think we just, started on the same day. That's right. It's, it's, it's correct. I wasn't sure about that. But he, he, he started as a you know, full-bledged full, full like, associate. I, I was just off counsel. So, um, so you know, I, I think technically he's my boss. Um, but today I'm the boss. Ha, ha, ha. So, Ben, tell the folks a little bit about yourself, your background, the education, whatever you do professionally, um, and then, then we'll do a little lead-in. Yeah, we, uh, it's great to be here. I enjoy the podcast and sort of uh, didn't know that I had, would have any value added to an episode ever, so I hope, hope that ends up being the case. But yeah, we, uh, we started, I believe, the same day at the firm. Um, you say the bit about of cancel. I'm actually not sure which is higher than the other right now, and especially at our firm. So we'll uh, we'll just have to let the let the folks with the higher pay grades sort all that out. But I'm a litigator at the firm. Do um, trademark and IP law. Do government debarments. Do sort of anything that the uh, anything that the bosses tell me to do, and try to keep my smile on my face while I'm doing it. Uh, background for me: I grew up over in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Um, Went to uh, Bridgewater College for my undergrad, University of Richmond Law School. Found my way to Maryland somewhere where I'm actually live in Woodbine now that's, and uh, spend a lot of time around Ellicott City in Baltimore. And uh, I also, uh, also dabble in cannabis law. So uh, so we sort of cover all the bases. That's right. We, well, we may have a future show on cannabis law as well as we were talking. Uh, at some point, I'm going to have to be done with this space thing, or at least as a, as a weekly feature. <laughs> I mean, at some point I'm, I'm going to, I think I'm already ahead of where some things are, but at some point I'm going to be uh, at least where a lot of the stuff is. That, that point may already have occurred, to be frank. Anyway, so that's great, but you said something about government disbarment. I assure you that almost nobody in the audience knows what government disbarment is. I don't think it has anything to do with what we're going to talk about today, but what is that? Yeah, you know... Um where we work, you're you're up in Maryland. I'm in Maryland too, but I go into our Leesburg and Tyson's offices a good bit. But this area is just rife with government contractors. You couldn't swing a cat, I guess, is the euphemism, and not hit a government contractor somewhere. It's true. In in this area, but when a government contractor or somebody that works for a contracting group, let's say, runs afoul of regulations or the law, think that overbills time doesn't keep track of their breaks, or they do something as, as big as commit fraud on a shipment that fulfills a government contract, well, if there's enough reason where the government's worried about your future ability to be responsible, uh, be responsible 
call it responsibility. Um, if they have a question about that, they might propose that you be debarred. And what that means under the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulations, or the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations, the DFAR, is that they will propose that for a period of up to three years, you be prevented from doing any contracting or working for a contractor. So up here where people, that is their career, that is their livelihood, that's a big deal when the government sends you a letter saying we're proposing that you can't do this for three years. And so they contact people like me who figure out how to respond to the government and try to make the case that either the person should not be debarred or it should be a minimal period of time. Thankfully, past performance is not indicative of future gains, but the firm has a pretty good track record in helping people that are facing debarment or contracting issues. Yeah, we have like an internal cheerleading squad, meaning our marketing department, and they send little success notes around. Victory notice. Victory notice. And then Ben frequently appears on that victory notice about a wide variety of cases. So if you got something in mind, he might be a good one to call. If you've got a Maryland, D.C., Virginia situation, litigation, IP, and as he talked about debarment, sounds a little bit like disbarment, though. Well, those are usually permanent, but not necessarily. Sometimes you're eligible, but I figured out in your dissertation or your description why they don't call it defarment, because it's the defars, so it would make more sense. Probably only lawyers would get confused by disbarment anyway. Exactly. The Virginia lawyer always had a section in it that listed the people who had gotten in ethical trouble and were either suspended or their licenses, or they were proposed for disbarment. And for years, when I would get the Virginia lawyer, I would just go straight to that page and look for anyone I had gone to school with. So haven't seen anybody, and so I guess that's good, but it takes a little bit of the enjoyment out of reading the Virginia lawyer for me. Well, true story. I used to be sort of regulatory compliance for my prior firm's, one of their major clients, and I had a look at the Maryland disciplinary report and the D.C. disciplinary report, which was in the D.C. Bar Journal at the time, might still be, every month. The Maryland one, I think I had to look it up. And I had to tell the client what lawyers had any sort of disciplinary trouble, because all of them were ineligible to work for our firm or get any referral work from us or any other firm or lawyer in their network, period. And I did know the occasional lawyer in there. Some of them had been people that I had fired at times. Anyway, this is not what anyone is tuned into, just to know that I was once a big shot or some reasonable facsimile of same. So anyway, so back to Antarctica. So Antarctica is what some people call the South Pole. It is where the penguins are, not the polar bears. It is a continent. It's a landmass covered with something like two miles of ice, which, you know, another story is if there's still like two miles of ice vertically on top of that or not. And it is international. There's, as far as we know, no one lives there. No humans, no one, nothing sentient. There are legends abound and there's myths and there's whole things about 
the continents being in different places and, and portals to the hollow earth and uh, spaceships and Nazi expeditions and things like that. And believe me, before Garden of Doom is done, we're going to cover all of that stuff if we, we have not, not already. Spoiler, the, the portal to hollow earth? Oh, yes, we have. So check out Garden of Doom if you're interested in, in that. Um, but today we're just going to go with what is not boring at all, but the more terrestrial stuff. So Ben was kind enough to volunteer to take on this task. Actually, funny story is that one day he contacted me. He goes, I didn't know you did a podcast. What are you talking about? He goes, he goes, yeah, I, I, it was just, it was on my suggestion. I listened to it. It was really good. And I'm like, is that, is that Jeff Lippman from our firm? Is that the guy I know? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, it's good. And apparently he told a few other people to listen to the firm. And, and so there's, some fans that you're not the first member of the firm to be on the podcast by the way um yeah dominique dominique was on the here there be dragons episode um yeah so uh yeah it's exciting but you are the first one i think to be on garden views so uh so welcome and thank you for breaking that that cherry um all right tell us a little bit about antarctica besides what i've said well i i guess um I think that in that email back and forth, um, I remember getting, then I remember later getting an email from you that talked about some of the things that were coming up on the podcast and whether we knew any guests. And you listed something, you listed Antarctica law on a, on a long list of things that you were interested in. And well, I'm not, I'm not an expert in Antarctica law, but I'm probably the only person at the firm that's been to Antarctica. I've gone swimming in Antarctica. I've camped in Antarctica. And so I thought, well, this, this sounds pretty cool. Um, so I was glad for this chance. And it, uh, it gave me a chance to go back just uh, beyond like reading Shack- about Shackleton and the Endurance and books like that. It gave me a chance to brush up and come up to speed on more of uh, Antarctica law. And I think before we even get into the international flavor of Antarctica, it's it's important to take a step back and just remember what Antarctica is. Like you um, like you said, it's, uh, it's the South Pole, it's penguins, it's the last discovered continent. Um, unlike the other continents, though, what's cool about Antarctica is it only has a human history of about 200 years. So 200 years of human history, um, you have you have over 60,000, uh, I think it's over 61,000, maybe 62 at this point, book, nonfiction books and papers that have been written about Antarctica. Over 91% of those have been written since 1951. Wow. So this is a, this is a relatively new, new area, um, area technically as an area of the world, but when we're talking about Antarctica law, Antarctica science, and we're really talking about something that's that's not that old. It's younger than the United States. Um, right now, when you talk about what Antarctica is, uh, it's a continent with 70 permanent research stations from 29 different countries. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, you have uh, the U.S. and its bases. It has the largest base, which is McMurdo Research Station down in Antarctica. Uh, the U.S. also has the southernmost uh research station in Antarctica. That's the um, Edmonds and Scott or Edmonds and Scott research base. Um, so, so Antarctica is sort of a fascinating place. Um, if you were to look at sea charts, um, definitely before 1700, 
most of them between 1700 and 1760, um, you wouldn't see anything that said Antarctica on that. You would see something that said Terra Australis Incognita, that uh, southern land, unknown southern land. If anything um, at all. Yeah, and, and so you'll see a lot of the old charts, like a 16, 1657 chart is Jan Jansonius. Um, he has a chart you'll look at, and you'll just see the outline. It looks like, you know, the barrier islands in North Carolina, where you just see sort of the line and little angles. Um, that's all Antarctica is, because uh, it was sort of like the, um, I guess in that period of time, it was less about figuring out what Antarctica is, as opposed to figuring out what Antarctica isn't. Because legend was that there was a giant southern land continent below the 60th, uh, below 60 degrees. And so most of the time, people were trying to find this giant land continent. And when they couldn't spout it, they couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, 1772, while things were sort of going crazy in this country, Captain Cook has the first of his southern voyages. Um, and he doesn't find Antarctica. In fact, he never, he never sees anything. But what he doesn't do is that he is able to say that he doesn't see this landmass. So he's able to put the, uh, the, the terra incognita to bed. And people start realizing, hey, there's something else going on. That, uh, that takes you up to about 1820, 1821. Um, 1820, this is uh, January 30th, 1820. Edward Bransfield, a Brit, he sees the Trinity Peninsula in Antarctica. He sees it from an island. I've actually been to that island. Um, he sees it, and that's believed to be the first sighting of Antarctica. Except people now have figured out that three days before he saw it, either the January 27th or January 28th, there were two Russian ships oh. down there, and some of their, some of their crowd went, went on, on shore, and that's supposedly the first sighting of Antarctica. 1821, jumping ahead, um, stories say that sealers, um, I mean sealing, uh, killing seals is the, uh, is the, the primary activity in the South George's Island, Falkland Islands, down around Antarctica in 1821. People are saying now that a lot of sealers went on shore and they were the first people to land. Um, that's when there's a British American, Captain John Davis, um, he goes on shore. Um, at Antarctica, but none of that's documented. We don't have documentation that anybody actually stood on Antarctica, but we assume, based on these stories about 1821 and all of the sealing activity there, um, that that's when the first first people to step foot on Antarctica uh, took a step. Uh, 1831, uh, James Clark Ross locates the North Pole. The Ross will come up later because we have the Ross Shelf. Ross ice shelf down there that seems to be melting and breaking every time you watch the news. Right. But James Clark Ross, he finds the, locates the North Pole, 1839. He, he also, he's looking for the South Pole. Um, he determines that it can't be found from the sea. Uh, takes you up a little bit further. 1893, uh, a great year in history because that's the year, of course, of the uh, Chicago Exposition the World's Fair in Chicago, The Devil in the White City, the, uh, the Eric Larson book. That's also the year that it's the start of the heroic age um, involving Antarctica. That's 1893 to 1918, where there's many 
um, expeditions around Antarctica, modern whaling starts. So like Ulysses um, and Achilles and Hercules or different heroes? Well, different heroes. A lot of heroes ended up getting caught in the ice. You get a lot of people like <laughs> stuck in the ice and that, I guess that's heroic, but uh, it also could be not following your ways, I guess. Um, but 18, 1893, you have that leading up in Devil in White City. If any of your listeners haven't read it, I'm sure they all have. The Chicago Exposition that year was just great. You should read about it. You can do a show about it, about all of the innovations. Um, for instance, uh, uh, in Harpers Ferry, I was in Harpers Ferry two days ago. The John Brown Fort in Harpers Ferry was deconstructed brick by brick and taken to Chicago for the ex exhibition in uh in 1893, you had Edison and uh, I, you had uh, Edison and um, Tesla vying over whether AC power or DC power was going to rule the world. All of that's happening around the Chicago exhibition of uh, 1893. But that leads up to 1895, and that's the first documented landing. So 18, so 1894. We don't care about 1894. That was a that yeah, was yeah, it's sort of a throwaway year. Right. I, I mean. And uh, I don't remember what happened in 1994, but 1894, that was that, that was people who were tired from... That was the year my... Uh, ...and they were getting ready for 1895, I think. Yeah. That's obvious what was happening. That was the year of my 727th marriage, so... <laughs> By the way, do you, do you know what Antarctica means? No, I don't. It actually means without bears. Without... <laughs> Like literally, it means without bears. That's, that's does that mean that the Arctic means with bears? Land without bears. Arctic actually means bears. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Well, see, that's that's my yeah. legal legal education going deduction going yeah. there. But that 1895, you had the first documented landing. Um, but you also had, and this is where it really kicks into your show. Sort of the first governmental thing happens regarding Antarctica. It's the the sixth. International Geographical Congress passes the Antarctica Resolution. And the Antarctica Resolution says that the exploration of Antarctica is a great geographical feat and it needs to happen by the end of the decade. So so that's really that gets the that gets the ball rolling. That's why in that last end of the eighteen hundreds there are so many people trying to figure out what's going on with Antarctica. So, it's an exciting time. So whose parties to that? The, the, the United States, Napoleon, the Ottomans, you know, Ataturk the Great? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> it's, 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 that'd be an interesting, that'd be an interesting tea party. The Kaiser? I don't know, I don't know actually who. I'm assuming, and, and I'm going to have to confess, I don't, I don't want to get this wrong, but I'm not afraid of going out on a limb here that the, that the sixth geographical conference was probably like the preceding five and it was probably a lot of old white men sitting around a table mm. I'm, I'm just assuming that I, I don't know it could be could be wrong this could have been a diverse cast of characters but I doubt it right and they probably represented Russia and the United States uh, Great Britain yeah uh, it, you would had you would have had the UK you would have had the UK Russia and and U.S. maybe somebody from South America's, and because we'll get into that when we talk about the Antarctica Treaty. But all of that period of of really exciting discovery leads you up to the 
very first, the first decade of the 1900s. That's when Ernest Shackleton makes his first voyage down there. I, I always love that it was the, the voyage of the Nimrod. I think that that's interesting. It's unfortunate. Um, what? Nimrod but, gets a bad name. Well, I know, but the name it name it gets is the it sort of is what it is, <laughs> misperception or not. And so I doubt Ernest Shackleton wants to be known with the voyage of the Nimrod before he, caught, he catches the endurance in ice right. and has has the ordeal. But um, that's the first vehicle where they both landed. That was the first time you had motorized vehicles um, on Antarctica. They made it to uh, 88 degrees and 23 minutes south. So that was the furthest south anybody had ever gotten. Um, 1911, uh, people get to the South Pole twice. It's twice in, in 33 days, I believe. Two expeditions that reach the South Pole twice in 33 days. Um, but to skip forward and to get into sort of modern history. But can we just put a pin in that for a second? Because I, okay. I, want, I want to make sure I'm right about something. So this is 88 degrees and 23 minutes south. I am assuming that in the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere, that the most you can go is 90 degrees for 180 yeah. degrees on one half of the, yeah. the... Okay, so that's pretty far. So so each degree after that is how many miles roughly? I guess it's a line of, uh, what that be, longitude? So... Yeah, I, I don't... Well, you got you got me there. You're gonna We're going to have to let the guys in the editing booth fix... Uh, figure that one out, but 88, 88 degrees is in twenty three minutes is is south because I think the I think the minutes I think they're sixty minutes. I'm yeah. not sure. Somebody somebody will know that I'm well, wrong. Well, it would make sense, but I I don't know the answer to that. And it's fine that you don't because that's not what I asked you to look into. But that you were so specific, I thought maybe. But anyway, that that's pretty darn close to ninety degrees, which is you know in essence you know zero, and I guess yeah. that would be the magnetic south. At, at that point, or or at yeah, least what you remember that the 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 poles, the way they are, is they're yeah. a little bit off from where yeah. you expect, and they can and switch around. But you have you have that they move going on. Um, but that period, I mean, after 1911, um, then you have sort of a well, the world the world sort of in an interesting flux. Then you have World War, you have World War One come up. Yeah, um, you have you have the. Uh, the decimation of the world economy and the rebuilding of the world economy. Um, but then you get close to, you have that interesting period. I mean, you had a colonial period before, but right before World War II, you have everybody seems to have colonies wherever they can have colonies around the world. I mean, a lot of that, well, that's another episode. But you had an increased number of expeditions to Antarctica during this period leading up to World War II. Just uh, sort of a, a belief from all different sides that people needed to get to Antarctica and that they needed to claim territory and that they needed they needed to figure out what was there. And I, I'm assuming that in that time it was to see what was there, that what might be able to benefit, what might be able to benefit them. Because so in 1944... Oil, the gold, most, coal, yeah, iron, yeah, the, 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 the copper, light. Yeah. Uh, you have 1944. You have the first permanent stations uh, in Antarctica: um, Port Lockroy, that's on Winky Island; Hope Bay, that's on the peninsula. When I went to Antarctica, I went on the peninsula. The peninsula is what curves up towards the Drake Passage towards Argentina, and so that's the part of Antarctica that most people, if 
well, people who travel to Antarctica, they usually travel to the peninsula because it's just a big deal to tra- travel anywhere else okay. in the peninsula. A couple things. Is that named after Sir Francis Drake? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And can you confirm or deny that when you were there, you looked exactly like Han Solo at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back? I I don't think I look like that. I think uh, Han Solo is probably better looking. So, uh, so they had that... Uh, well, I'm going to go 1890s on you and go balderdash. <laughs> but they had a. But what's great about so yeah, Sir Francis Drake, the Drake Passage, um, some of the roughest water in the world. Um, it can also occasionally be uh, deathly still, and people who traveled the Drake a lot, especially people who are making trips to Antarctica, tourist trips to Antarctica, they'll call it the Drake Lake. Mm. But most times, this is a place with pretty big waves. When I went on, that's when everybody um, was was sort of confining themselves to their rooms with uh, with ear patches and wrists and anything that they had to try to wait uh, to try to fend off nausea. What is um, the cape uh, at the bottom of it? Is that the Cape of Good Hope? Is that the, is the cape? I always I always get the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Horn. Me too. Confused. But I, I um, think that is the Cape of Good Hope because Good the hope. because the waters are so rough and people had to hope to get through when they were because that was the passage that you take from Europe to get to Africa and and yeah. Asia yeah. and I think I think literally it was because they you had to have good hope to to, to to get through. No, that well that's that's actually but during that I think that. But you're right. If we had a map pulled up, I'm sure we would see it. But yeah, that's Sir Francis Drake. All of the people that we've heard about in history um, have have made that passage at some point. But between 44 and 57, um, you have a lot of exploration. You have a there are there are seven nations uh, prior to 1957 or right after 1957 that have claimed territory in Antarctica. Um, Australia, Norway, Argentina, Chile, France, the French Republic, um, UK, and New Zealand had all claimed territory because in 1957 something big happened um, that would affect Antarctica to this day, and that was the declaration of the International Geophysical Year. Um, And why that is important is because... uh, the International Geophysical Year is what then would trigger two years later the the Antarctic Treaty. Um, that was that was the start, and people taking a real look, saying we we need to come up with some sort of agreement that's going to govern this. We can't just have everybody, every nation coming down. I think the seven nations that already had staked a claim to territory, they didn't want other countries coming and staking a claim to territory in and Antarctica anymore. What were those seven countries? Australia, Norway, Argentina, Chile, France, UK, and New Zealand, and then there's a, uh, it's uh, 620,000 square miles uh, east of the Ross Ice Shelf is an area, an unclaimed area of Antarctica that's called Marie Birdland, mm-hmm. Marie Birdland, so that's the only area of Antarctica that's unclaimed. Uh, that one thing, one sort of interesting piece of trivia um, that happened between 1957 and 1959, unlike the forget-me-year forget, forget of 1894, 1958, Sir Edmund Hillary 
get in, got into the game, and he went to the South Pole. Oh, okay. This is two. This is let's say I think it was 1953 that he cl- climbed Everest. Yeah. About 1953. Um, so 1958, he gets into the game, goes to the South Pole. Um, then in 1983, fast forward. This this sort of something you probably don't want to know about. 1953, there's this guy. I think his name was Mike Dunn. He was a promoter. He had the idea that we need to get the world's greatest explorers and drop them off at the North Pole. So Edmund Hillary and Neil Armstrong got on a tiny little plane and got dropped off at the North Pole. And so that makes Edmund Hillary the only person that's ever been to the South Pole, been to the North Pole, and climbed Mount Everest. That's wow. pretty big. That is a great piece of cherry. And by the way, I was wrong. It's Cape Horn. So it that, is Cape that, Horn. Okay. My little exposition on that is probably the Cape of Good Hope for that reason. As much sense as it is, it made. I'm wrong. That that Cape of Good Hope is is under Cape Town, Africa. So okay. well, so I told you, I always get them always get them wrong. I know that one's in Africa and one's in South America, but I yeah. I, I get them backwards. Yeah, no, no. Damn. we're not afraid to get things wrong. We have little computers. We're gonna before we move on Norway. Norway's a little out of its territory, and, and probably from today's standards, its size as a world power to be going all the way up from Norway, which literally means the North Way, down to, down to so I guess they're seafaring, but what, what's their claim to Antarctica based on, I mean, I guess they just, uh, one of their ships got there, and that, that may be it. And I can't, I can't remember this history, I've, I've heard it, I can't remember the history too well, so... Anybody listening will have to take a look, trust the Google machine. Um, I think Norway was connected to the Queen Maud Island or Queen Maud Land. I think Queen Maud was the queen of Norway, I believe. They, so they dedicated this huge stake of land, um, claimed a lot of territory. The United States jumped in and they disputed the claim. This, this would have been World War II because I know that Germany disputed the claim as well. And Germany made flights over over Antarctica, and they dropped off, uh, I don't know whether they're coins or metal markers, I think like 26,000 with swastikas uh, emblazoned on them to claim their territory, but they never made any any official stake uh, claim of, of territory in Antarctica. They were just ticked off at, the, at Norway for overreaching. Um, but all this is—it's pretty unsettled time for the world. So, uh, so maybe, maybe the, maybe the Norwegians thought that they would just sort of sneak one in there when everybody was focused on other matters. I'm not sure, um, <laughs> but I don't know. And, and to the and however many of these 26,000 metal swastika Nazi plates are down there covering Antarctica, I'm not sure about that either. Ah, um, well, this is one of the things that maybe we'll talk about on. The uh, Nazis and the Occult Show, which is coming in October with a with a, a three person panel, and at least two of them are experts. So <laughs> anyway, so all right. Well, so well, they had and all yeah. of this. I mean, it's it's too much talking, but that leads us up to what you really wanted to talk about, and that's 1959. Uh, people come up with the idea for the Antarctic Treaty. It's ratified in 1961. There are 12 member nations: Argentina, Australia, Belgium. They always outhit their weight class. Uh, Chile, the French Republic, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, the USSR. This is when the Soviet Union sure. is in existence, the United Kingdom and the United States, so 12 member nations. Um, the treaty 
one of the easiest treaties that you're ever going to see to understand um, because it's really simple. Um, the treaty sets out that Antarctica is going to be dedicated to exclusively peaceful purposes. Uh, so it, it, the treaty really has three provisions. First is exclusive, exclusively peaceful purposes, prohibition on military bases, maneuvers, or tests. That's an important that's important as we're looking, as you're thinking about the time period that we're in, 59, right. 61, uh, any military tests nobody wants to have happening down there. Um, there's no ban on military personnel for scientific research, um, but military personnel for military purposes are, are strictly out. Uh, the second prong of the treaty is dedicating Antarctica to scientific research. Um, a big component of that is sort of the I guess, outside of the uh, League of Nations, after the League of Nations, this might be the first sort of attempt at, at collective internationalism, but they're supposed, they're supposed to be the free exchange of data between countries that are doing research in Antarctica. And so if you think the, of the countries involved, you have France, the U.S., Japan, USSR, you have all of these countries are supposedly going to be exchanging, exchanging their scientific data freely. Um, the third part, and this is going to be a, a key part that's important legally, it's probably why the Antarctic Treaty was able to exist in the first place. Uh, the third part is the concept of territorial sovereignty. Basically what this says in the Antarctic Treaty is if you sign on to this treaty, you don't have to give up what you've already claimed. So those seven nations that have already claimed territory in Antarctica they didn't have to give up those claims because of the treaty. But what the treaty says is there's, we're going to dedicate it in peaceful purposes, science, territorial sovereignty. You countries that are here, you don't have to give up your claims. But while this treaty is in effect, there's not going to be any, any new expansion, new declarations or stakes of claim to territory um, until we're done with the treaty. And then they reiterated no no nuclear tests. So once again, their their focus is on their focus is I think I think somebody can correct me. I'm just guessing that a big focus was the U.S. and USSR wanting to make sure that there were no nuclear tests anywhere. And this is sort of one of the ways they did it. The, the Antarctic Treaty covers land south of 60 degrees. Well, I imagine so, that Japan would have been wasn't too thrilled about yeah. uh, more tests going on either. Although I think. Well, in the 50s, Japan was still sort of a quasi-protectorate of the U.S. Well, and I just, uh, well, this is off subject, but um, uh, have you listened to the, uh, the, Bomber, Moff uh, the Bomber Mafia, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book? That's really interesting because I, I forget what the guy's name is, the bomber, but they spent some time talking about, and I think I listened to an episode where Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, sure. whether he, his podcast where he interviewed Malcolm Gladwell, and they were talking about the firebombing of J Japan. And I heard that, sure. Japan, yeah. And that really, today, when we're talking about the, the, the atomic weapons that were used, we tend to think of them in terms of nuclear weapons that, that we have today. And we really don't, we really don't see... Um, it seems to us that use of atomic weapons in Japan was so far and beyond what was happening in Japan and destruction to that time. But really, when you look at the numbers, um, the firebombing had been so destructive of Japanese cities that, that really they were almost equivalent 
equivalent types of military tactics. It was really interesting, fascinating, stuff I didn't know. Yeah, he did. He did a. I I heard that series Firestorm on the East. If, if anyone who doesn't know Dan yeah, that, Carlin, he typically does multi-part podcasts. They come out several months apart, typically, and they're often each individual show might be three to five hours. So it, but they're well worth it, well researched, and yes, uh, yeah, and and makes makes the Garden of Doom look like it's a uh, it's a coffee break that, uh, in the turn in the time. And if anybody's going to listen, check out Hardcore History. Try to find the episode that he did on the start of the uh, the First World World War. Yes. His, um, his coverage of the assassination of the Archduke is just a, it's fascinating. Uh, I think it's a good story. But that sixty degree circle, getting back oh. to Antarctica. Well, I'm sort of a big fan of the Wrath of the Khan series as well. But actually, I want I do want to put a pin in. So I'm glad I'm glad we had a little digression because the language of this treaty is so similar in spirit and actual wording to the to the treaty on outer space um now there's a little bit more about resources of space and i don't know if that's because countries have regrets about what they did in antarctica or because in space they don't think there's going to be uh two miles or 200 miles of ice to have to go through before you get to land and so uh, even though space is really really hard to get to not that antarctica isn't that it seems like it's more likely to get resources and habitable um, communities or, or colonies or modules, whatever, there. And we've talked about all this on prior episodes. But for those of you who this is your first indoctrination to garden uh, views or haven't listened or, to the shows that deal with space, you should listen to those as well. Because if you're interested in that, you'll be interested and you'll see why I picked Antarctica. I mean, it's probably self-evident at this point, but it is, it is a, you know, like space. It's something which... They're, they're trying to do some sort of international agreements. They're trying to live up to them and keep it so that it's not uh, for military uses. There's a little bit more with the resources, but there's, you know, there's a debate um, that Professor Coplow uh, from Georgetown brought up that, that what's military? You know, anything that's opposite of military means peaceful. And then there's always like, no, the military, they mean aggressive. So you can use the military for peaceful re- resupplying scientific research purposes I guess basic security um, and that's what's happening in Antarctica and you know for you cynics out there you can probably say well you can you know you know every embassy has a CIA liaison officer I'm not saying there are in Antarctica but you can see what the extrapolation here is so that, that's that's my own little uh, commentary only partly editorial uh, and then we'll get back to exactly where you left off well, they, well, I think the, um, I guess that, that reminds me that there are two, couple of other things of the treaty that, um, that, that sort of factor in will become more important just because the way they relate, um, like I said, it covers, covers land south of 60 degrees. You have the, uh, Arctic circle, you have the Antarctic circle, you cross the 60 degree line. I thought it was little bit over 60 degrees you're officially in antarctica so if you take a boat to antarctica there'll be a lot of people who are trying to get their seventh continent out of the way um they really they really start cheering when they cross that line i i thought that was akin to counting a state where you just done a layover in an airport but uh but we'd say the other thing the treaty does supersizing that though it permits inspections um so it says that for the 12 member nations, and now we have since the Antarctic Treaty, spoiler alert, um, we have 40 nations 
that are part of and yes china is a part too that sometimes the first question people have when they're thinking about uh, countries that are sort of at odds but the treaty said that each of these member nations is going to be able to designate inspectors and with notice they can go anywhere they can go anywhere on antarctica um, they're expected to be allowed to inspect anything expected to inspect it's a weird turn of phrase there but they're expected to be able to inspect anything wherever they go, anybody anybody else's uh, bases. Um, for disputes that arise under the treaty, first, the treaty simply says that people are supposed to try to resolve them, <laughs> try to resolve them amicably. It's sort of like a try to figure it out, exclamation mark. Um, but if you can't, um, well, if we you can't figure it out. We see that on contracts all the time, that the parties yeah, are supposed to negotiate in good faith before. <laughs> But, but then the kicker comes in and says that if you can't, then you can refer the matter to the International Court of Justice. Um, so that links the Antarctic Treaty to other global global judicial bodies. And the, where you, that Court of Justice is where? Is it in, in the Hague like all the other international courts? I think that's Hague like the International Criminal Court. Well, that's Belgium um, again, right? That's why they... That's, that, that's, <laughs> the, yeah, Bel, Belgium's really, you know, they... They've done a lot for the world as far as beer goes, and I think that while they've had other people soused on their beer, that they've been going around. And I've, I've often said that uh, what's a that the Swedes, I think it's Sweden, IKEA, Swedish. Yes, it is. Yeah, so IKEA, it's hard to it's hard to believe that the Swedes haven't done better on the world stage if they can fit a, a kitchen cabinets into a two inch tall cardboard box that it's really surprising that the Swedes haven't made more of a mark on the world. Than they, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure we have lots of Swedes listening who, uh, you, you have a proud country. Listen, they, <laughs> they, gave us, they gave us Varangians, they, they gave us Beowulf. They give us Abba? Uh, I, no, I think they're from uh, uh, Oslo. I think that's Norway. Do you think that well? It's Norway, Queen Maudland. Norway probably claimed their territory in Antarctica because they wanted to send Abba there. The real Waterloo. No, so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Belgium, yeah. So, okay, they, they, they said, hey, put the Hague here, no problem, but we want in. So, sounds good, and they have, they have good chocolate, but I, I've been told that the chocolate actually comes from Switzerland. I don't know what's true. <laughs> well, well, they have a, uh, after 61, there's not too much to talk about. There's, um, you have some related agreements about Antarctica that come around. Um, 1972, you have the uh, CCAS, the, I think it's the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Seals. Um, that comes into play. It's uh, ratified, I think, 1978. Um, 1980, you have people to propose uh, the CCAMLR, the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctica in Antarctic marine living resources and that uh, that kicks in in 1982 when it's ratified those are two independent agreements um, but those two independent agreements are important because signatories agreed to the territorial provisions of the Antarctic Treaty in those two side agreements so you have a lot more countries participating in the CCA or the CCA MLR um, and signing on but in signing on to those two agreements about seals and marine resources, they're signing on to the territorial provisions in the Antarctic Treaty saying that we understand that nobody's going to be able to claim extra territory here. 
Um, the third, uh, the third uh, related agreements, 1991. Um, it's not an independent agreement. It's part of the Antarctic Treaty or stems from it, but that's the protocol on environmental protection for the Antarctic Treaty. Um, uh, fun fact for anybody that takes creole oil as a supplement, that's the main purpose of the CCANLR, that it's protecting marine resources, but it's mainly protecting krill, fin fish, and, uh, and marine resources. An important thing um, about that agreement, and that might be one that has a, has a bearing on agreements in space in the future, is that that agreement, the Marine Resources Agreement, is the first agreement that took an ecosystem focus of Antarctica. So it meant that like, while we're protecting krill or we're protecting fin fish, what we're going to do is we're going to have scientists who are able to say that, that fishing of krill, fishing of fin fish, that it's affecting the overall Antarctic ecosystem. And so we're able to put limits on, uh, on fishing um, because of that. So that it's sort of that was a new approach in law, the ecosystem approach mm-hmm. that let somebody say, "Hey, we're we're going to limit this fishing not just because of the effect on the fish themselves, but on the effect on the, the whole ecosystem." Right, and uh, you, you could extrapolate that if you want to entire environments, because you know, uh, fish and is just an, uh, you know another type of resource at the end of it. So I I have a couple of things here. I don't know if you know the answers, but we'll probably d- discuss them. Firstly, I'm not sure if it's codified in any of the laws, but my understanding in Antarctica, either it's custom or it is in the treaties, where if somebody needs help, that you are, whoever, whatever nation they're from, if you're close, you're required to give help, borrowing from the law of the sea, that, you know, I mean, obviously, if you don't do it, you're a rogue, you're a pirate, whatever. Um, but like the law of the sea, if, if there's bodies in the water, doesn't matter if they were your enemies before, you, you, you're, you're supposed to try to assist them. Yeah, the, the 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 interplay of these agreements is really really interesting because before when we had when you have this CCAMLR the ecosystem approach to the marine resources at that same time and this is sort of plays into what you're thinking about about space law too or what you've been talking about is people start saying we need to consider some sort of instrument like this for mineral resources on Antarctica. That's 1981. Uh, 1982, you have the uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea that minerals uh, uh, on the seabed beyond national jurisdiction are a common heritage for everybody. So the Law of the Sea sets that out. People point to it and they say, minerals in Antarctica should be the same thing as the way you've described these minerals beyond national jurisdiction and the law of the sea. And so that leads to this 1991 environmental protocol, um, which we're familiar with the Madrid protocol as it relates to trademarks in in the legal world. This is also the Madrid protocol, but it's 1991, it's a different protocol. Madrid must have a thing for the formation of protocols. Um, They've got Belgium, uh, Flemish envy. Probably. Spanish field, they must have gotten permission from Belgium to have, have another protocol conference that's uh, Spain. But they have um, the biggest part of that Madrid protocol, and I'll say the environmental protocol, um, which lasts through 2048. Remember, this is also, we're talking about about the 50, well, 
2048. It's about the same time people are starting to think about the 50th anniversary of the treaty and starting to wonder whether it has legs and needs to be trade changed. But it goes through 2048. There's a ban on mining okay. on Antarctica. So for through 2048, there's a total ban on mining unless there it's a scientific uh, scientific mining operation. There's never really been. Uh, mining on Antarctica outside of exploration, and that's because of what you've said. It, it's commercially unfeasible, and unfeasible to do. There's limited quantities. There are, there are metals, coal, oil, um, but the ice, I mean, read, read endurance, and you'll see that Antarctica is not even with global warming. It's not the most hospitable place in the world. It's actually getting worse with global warming, but there's rain now in places where we don't think there's ever been rain. Uh, but it, it really right now is commercial. I, I agree with you that that as far as mining rare metal rare metals um, in space, that seems right now, given the activity of SpaceX, um, that seems more realistic uh, than than people really making mining on Antarctica uh, feasible to do from an economic perspective. Okay, so a few questions. One, I don't know if you know the answer to it, but you know, countries have a 200-mile exclusive economic zone for for the sea, you know, from from their borders. And then there's, you know, we talked about this on episode, but it gets complex when countries are within 200 miles of each other. But they it, it manages to get worked out. Is there also this 200-mile uh, sort of exclusive like or exclusion zone around Antarctica, or no? I. I don't know the answer to that question, frankly, and I feel like I should. That there's, I know that there's some degree of protection because you have, you have Antarctica. If you, as you think about the the big ice mass that's the center of Antarctica, but then you have it's surrounded by islands upon islands upon islands, and they're all a part of Antarctica. And so by the time you get factor the islands, factor the peninsula, and you you move out a little bit further than that you're you're covering a pretty huge area but i don't know what the actual well if if antarctica especially given the fact that it uh that it has different countries taking claims to it i don't remember anything in the treaty that talks about a certain um exclusive zone around it that, that might be in the if if that's anywhere probably need to take a second look at that uh, marine living resources uh, agreement back in 82. What about the territories which are claimed? So McMurto Station, I mean, I presume that almost all of the stations or most of them are near the coast so they can get resupplied. I mean, I'm sure there's there's inbound stations. Um, If that's U.S. sovereign territory, does it end at the water's edge except for getting there getting out what we call ingress and egress or is there a 200 mile zone you know for the united states extending from mcmurdo and and whatever the russian base is extending from there new zealand same kind of thing or or no it's just it's just all I, international. I, don't, I don't believe there's the same sort of concept of uh, of territoriality that there exists in the rest of the world um given given the treaties provisions about while you still technically have this have this area that you've claimed, uh, you you don't have you, you can't do it's like having a uh, it's like having property that somebody has an easement on that 
that you technically own it, but you can't do whatever you want with it. Um, because when we talk about those 70, uh, those 70 permanent bases down there now, and a lot of closed, if you go to Wikipedia and you look at the list of uh, permanent Antarctic research stations, treaty provides that if you put a permanent station up, um, that if you decide to close it, you're supposed to take everything off of Antarctica that you put there. That doesn't really happen. It's, mm-hmm. it's not feasible to happen. It's not as bad as uh, uh, Sir Edmund's uh, Mount Everest with oxygen bottles, but it's um, but it is thing where you have you have dilapidated structures. Uh, I went when I went there and um, the island that we went swimming on. Uh, there, it was an old seal, old British sealing station, and so it's dilapidated buildings, old boats, but but nobody had been there in some time. But the, but what I was going to say about that is that you have these seventy permanent stations from twenty nine countries. Um, if you only have seven nations that have territorial stakes to Antarctica, that means you have twenty two more countries with permanent bases in Antarctica than you do countries who have claimed exclusive territory. Um, so while somebody may, might make a claim of exclusive territory, really that only makes a difference after the treaty expires and people go back to staking or claiming their own little piece of the pie. Are you aware of any cases where there's been hostilities between a country? So let's, whenever I don't want to call a country out, I just say, I just use Jeff, Jeff Zikistan. So let's just say Jeff Zikistan has one of those 70 bases. Uh, but Jeff Zikistan is the U.S. does not like Jeff Zikistan, and one of my seventy bases is really close to U.S. territory. But bec- but the U.S. says no, Jeff Zikistan, you cannot land at at our port. You've got to go seven hundred miles the other way, and you know talk to Argentina or or Russia or whoever you like. I mean, do do, do or do hostilities end because it's such a barren remote part that, that you even let Jeff Zikistan, the pariah state, in through, you know, U.S. customs or whatever to to, to resupply their base um, or do whatever they need to, uh, or or did they divert them? And after that very long question, the answer may well be, got no idea. <laughs> well, I think, um, I mean, Pakistan has a permanent station in Antarctica, I think. Um, oh, it's the name they, is, is Jeff Zikistan of Pakistan. It's just a coincidence. Jeff I'm not yeah. saying Pakistan's like this this bad actor country, but I mean, but there are lots of people with uh, with bases in Antarctica. I don't know of any. I don't know of any hostilities or even problems that have come up that come up between researchers like that. I know that that issues seem to get a little bit more complex when you're talking about. Uh, tour operators uh, taking groups to Antarctica uh, some of the work where you have uh, some of the, the piracy involving uh, uh, fish right. <laughs> your, your, uh, your krill pirates when I was on a boat in Antarctica we, we would see boats that were illegally uh, fishing for krill um, I don't know of any anything else I'm sort of envisioning you know I don't know if you watch For All Mankind uh, the Apple TV show nope. um, that reimagines the moon land, reimagines the moon landing. I won't give away any spoilers of how they they reimagine Apollo and and how history would have changed if Apollo had had gone differently. But there's a situation um, in for all mankind where both the Russians 
and the United States have research bases that they put on the moon on edges of a crater where they're doing some mining activities. Um, and in that show, there is a little bit of espionage between the two. There's questioning of motives. Um, the one thing that I think is different about Antarctica than the fictional show of For All Mankind is that you had the treaty that, that sets out um, absolute rights of inspection as long as you get it okayed. So I'm not even sure. I would like to Google and see whether there's ever been a request for inspection made that's been, that's been denied. Uh, because at this same time, you have, you have after the treaty happens, you have uh, consultative meetings every so often about Antarctica. Um, that that I, I don't know how how many years were between these these meetings that they would have. The meetings were always of uh, the Antarctic stakeholders that were the countries. Um, people in the 70s started saying we need to open these meetings up to NGOs uh, and and not just your NGOs, your IGOs, your intergovernmental um, operators. Um, so that begins happening. Meetings are starting to get opened up. Uh, other organizations, NGO organizations, are starting that have that have their basis in Antarctica. Um, like 1991, I talked about tour operators, but that's a big deal in Antarctica. Um, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators starts up. So it's this international group. And when I went on my trip to Antarctica, I was with a group. Um, called One Oceans Expeditions. Uh, actually, the one of the interesting facts is that the boat that I was on was a Russian research vessel, and it was the sister ship to the Russian vessel that's at the start of the movie Titanic. The oh. lady climbs up on the rail and throws her necklace off. But I was on the sister ship of that boat. I believe that boat was the Vavilov. Um, but the ship I went on, the, the captain was from Australia, and he would always talk about how there had to be this this tight uh, this tight working relationship between all of the tour operators because you have a you have National Geographic, you have One Ocean, you have lots of different groups that are that are sending ships to Antarctica with groups of people, and that can be um, all of the all of the scientific work and exploration of Antarctica is supposed to happen in such a way that it doesn't put a burden on the continent and so they really have to time when people go there's provisions for how long they can spend on the mainland uh you really are lots of penguins down there and you don't want harm to come to them because of too many people with selfie sticks can i ask you two questions that are one's directly related to that and the other one i think is related to the first question and that is if you want to open up one of these tour groups to go down there do you have to go through this treaty organization, the, the group of 12, the group of 40? Do you have to go to the UN? How do you get a license to be a tour group running tours to Antarctica? Well, that's a good question. I should have asked somebody, but I believe, I believe everybody who goes to Antarctica, I believe every tour, every tour operator that goes down there has to be a member of this international group. They have to have, uh, part of that is checking certain boxes on on how you're running tours to Antarctica. Um, and then you have to figure out where you're, I mean, they, they all leave from the sort of similar places in the world. That sure. A lot of trips that I was on, a lot of trips to the peninsula leave from Ushuaia at the bottom tip, southernmost town in the world. 
it's a little tip in the bottom of uh, Argentina. Mm. King, King crab is their uh, is their steak for Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires is beef. Uh, Ushuaia, Argentina's King crab. But of course, who of doesn't know that? Groups, yeah, a lot of these a lot of these groups are are leaving from there. But I'm not sure exactly how the 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 tour operators themselves get permission to run the tours because I'm not sure who approves um, of their operations like whether like who does IAATO um, answer to and that's what you've invited me on your podcast to answer but I, I don't have any idea well I, we, we thought more about space but uh, so that, that's okay um, the so similar to that Let's go back to Jeff Zikistan, our friend Jeff Zikistan. So Jeff Zikistan wants to open up a base. Forget that we had a base. It closed. We have to open up a new one. We actually took all of our stuff, and, and we can't find it anymore. Um, we want to open a base, I presume, on unclaimed land uh, there. Do If Jeff Zikistan wants to open a scientific research base on Antarctica, do we have to go through that international group, that Treaty of 40, or or some group through the to the UN, or do we just show up one day, we put up a scientific base, go, hey guys, Jeff Zekasan is now country 71? Well, you have to, you would need to be a signatory, so you have the, you have the 40 countries who have become signatories to the treaty, so that means that there's lots of other countries out there who have not become signatories of the country yet. So if Jeff Zikistan wasn't a signatory to the treaty, the first thing that you need to do is you need to uh, assemble all of your your voters in your podcast studio. You need to ratify the ratify the treaty and become a signatory to it. Agree to the overarching uh, provisions of it about scientific purposes, peaceful purposes, and territoriality. Um, then I think you're good to go. Okay. I don't think there's I don't think there's a board of zoning. All right. So so I, so so I did the math on this one. So we've got seventy country. Oh, there's seventy bases. So they're not from seventy. There's seventy bases from twenty nine countries, right? Yeah. So actually, there's less countries that are bases than the forty nations that are there. Yeah. Would it be possible for Jeff Zikistan? Let's rever- Let's just say Jeff Zikistan in the U.S. gets along just great. Jeff Zikistan wants to put a base on Antarctica, and they negotiate with the United States to put it on, you know, right next to McMurdo. We go, and, and the U.S. says that's great. Does Jeff Zikistan have to check with anyone else, or is it because that is the U.S.'s claim? The U.S. can lease it to Jeff Zikistan or Starbucks or whomever they want, or no? Remember, you ha- but what well, the key thing to remember is that though, well. The U.S. has a base, but the U.S. isn't one of the countries that has made a territorial claim to Antarctica. So the U.S. has a base, but they don't have any. First, they don't have any territorial claim to Antarctica. And even if they had a territorial claim, if the United States was included in that list of of the seven original countries that had staked a claim, that the territoriality really doesn't mean anything in Antarctica anymore. It might mean something when the treaty when the treaty ends. Then people might might uh, might claim sovereignty for their portion. But right now, all you have is uh, is the ability to say that we we stake claim to Antarctica in the past. But you don't have any your your claim of ter- territoriality doesn't really have any substance after you had the treaty because the treaty says that while you don't have to give this up that you can't expand it yeah 
you really can't establish anything because if you established any boundaries, if you established any any uh, any restrictions on who could cross your land, all of a sudden then you're running afoul of the the uh, treaty's main purpose, which is the free, open exchange of ideas and the ability of anyone to go anywhere. So even if it's Norway that does have a territorial claim, they couldn't do it any more than the United States could left, let Jeff Zika stand on. They, what's, what's, Nor- what's Norway going to do? Even what, I mean, what's Norway really going to do? No, yeah. but I mean, well, if Norway said, Jeff Zikistan, come on, you can come on Queen Maud Island and open your base, but Jeff Zikistan is not part of the treaty. It wouldn't be Norway that would do anything about it. It would be everybody else. But would Norway yeah. technically be violative of the treaty? Uh, and Jeff Zikistan would just be, you know, sort of an accomplice, but they're not part of the treaty, so they're not bound by it. They might just be a pariah. Yeah, and they would have to, and you'd have to figure out, I'm not actually sure how that dispute would end up getting resolved. It would be, uh, I saw that um, what two nations this week resolved that issue of the little island? Um yeah, I, I won't remember, but I read an article yesterday that two nations had, had finally, they said it was the most peaceful war ever, that they had resolved ownership of a tiny island somewhere in the world. One one nation took 60% of it, the other took 40 and called it a day. Um, I'm not sure how uh, claims like that or claims that people have done something wrong under the treaty um, would be resolved if if all of a sudden... I mean, we have the provisions of the treaty. It says International Court of Justice, if you don't just resolve things between yourselves. But but if something actually went wrong, say tomorrow, part of the Ross ice shelf collapsed, and instead of seeing open water, you saw gold deposits, um, that might change the tenor of, <laughs> yes. of, the, of the Antarctic Treaty. Because right now, People think, hey, we know that there's something there, but there's not much of it, and it's too hard to get. But if all of a sudden they saw tomorrow, um, whoever had claimed the Ross Ice Shelf, and I believe, I believe the Ross, I believe that's claimed by that might be Argentina. I don't, I don't remember, but whoever, uh, whoever claimed it, that maybe it's Australia. I don't know, but whoever claimed it they would probably start talking a little bit more about their sovereign claim to territory in Antarctica. I, I kind of have a jaundiced view of, uh, of politics and, uh, and world leaders like that, that I think if we found out that there were rare minerals yes. on Antarctica, all of a sudden there were, there we would were, be figuring out a way to get them. Right, that were now easily accessible because the shelf came down and now you could get there. Yes, I, I agree with you 100%. And, and even if Argentina didn't have much to do about it, there'd be whatever the biggest mining companies in the world would, would be making sweetheart deals with, with Argentina and doing that. So we, we, we adhere to cynicism here in Garden Views because after all, we are a close cousin of Garden of Doom. Um, okay, a couple of other questions. So you had mentioned that there was a, a, an agreement on the preservation or conservation of uh, big fin fish. Does that apply to whales and orcas as well? Because they're not fish. Well, I know that the CCAAMLR, um, I know it applies to krill, fin fish, and marine resources. I think, I know there is some, I think there's still some whaling activity. I mean, the, the Japanese um, are historic whaling mm-hmm. people. 
and I know that there's they're still heavily involved in whaling, but I I don't think I do, I think whales are protected as marine resources under that. I'll I'll have to get back to you. I'd like to. Uh, there are like some there are some international record. Yes, of course you can. Uh, yes, absolutely. You can you can uh, file a brief with us later, counselor. Yeah. Um, the I know that there are some international whaling treaties. Period, which uh, I, I see no reason why they wouldn't cover Antarctica just the same. Uh, I assume that the nation of the orcas did not sign on to that sealing treaty, and they're going to eat as many seal as they want. Okay. Exactly, and the big deal with krill. I didn't know this recently with krill that I I'd take a supplement of krill oil, but krill are are one of the foods in that part of the world that turn the flesh of salmon pink. Um, and so krill fishing is big not only for krill oil and supplement industry, but it's big also for the dyes that will turn the salmon flesh pink. Um, everybody wants to see bright pink salmon in the store, sure. and one of the worries are that that people are going to fish the krill to extinction uh, to make sure your salmon are pink. Yeah, otherwise it just looks like it's just another white fish. Um, okay. okay, so I think the last question, and this definitely will have some extrapolation to space. So we, we understand that, that there are nations that are bound by this treaty. The, 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 there are some enforcement mechanisms. Obviously there's some rogue actors out there, where, but, but to our knowledge there haven't been any rogue states. What about private business? Um, so it's no longer Jeff Zikistan, it's JeffX. Uh, and I have the resources equal to SpaceX, except it's JeffX, and I am evil. But I'm a private actor. And I, I'm like Blofeld or Spectre or Cobra Commander. I have unlimited resources. And I go, to, I go to Antarctica to unclaim territory, and then I claim it. It's international land. I'm not a signatory. I'm not even a state actor. Um, who, who's responsible? Is it, is it, if Jeff X is incorporating the United States, that the United States is responsible? Is no one responsible? Uh, if Jeff X does business in the United States, but is, uh, you know, flagged in, in, you know, I don't know, uh, Switzerland, is, is Switzerland liable? Um, do, do the nation states all deploy their Arctic Marines to get rid of Jeff X? I mean, how, how, does, how does one stop a, is there any mechanism to stop a private actor? And we have to pretend that the technology exists that a private actor could, you know, do an expedition like we saw in Kong versus Godzilla. Yeah, I think, um, I think, well, it's not such an easy answer, but I believe there's a provision of the treaty that, that says the jurisdiction. I believe jurisdiction would be in any country where Jeff X is located. Believe that that would be uh, uh, jurisdictionally, but jurisdiction really doesn't doesn't mean anything unless somebody can take action in that jurisdiction to stop you. Um, the United Nations they they've gotten more involved in the last um, well, I, I say the last few years, but I'm talking like somebody who still thinks it's the end of the '90s. Uh, over the last two generations, the United Nations has gotten a little bit more involved in thinking about environmental protections for uh, uh, for Antarctica, but the UN hasn't historically uh, been very active in Antarctica. There's not much to get too active about. Right. Um, I think that if we had the situation uh, where uh, 
private, a private non-governmental organization of business um, was was active there. I think the United Nations would take action. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that would be enforced to, to stop somebody from doing it. That that's the question that that sort of comes up. That the movie, what was the movie on uh, the Leo DiCaprio movie, the comedy Don't Look Up? Don't Look Up. That that movie. That well, if you look at that and you strip away the the dark the dark humor, um, it it's plainly about. SpaceX or organizations like SpaceX that it's a, a thinly veiled uh, argument about companies maybe SpaceX maybe Apple the guy looked uh, more like uh, uh, more like Tim Cook than well, Elon Musk well but, he needed he needed the the resources on the asteroid to uh, make the phones because it was all in Western yeah. China and so uh, so that would have saved him trillions of dollars forever and. Uh, and it was good, you know, independent. So, yeah. But, but, but the question would be that, like, in that situation, if Elon wants to land land a rocket on an asteroid and try to do mining operations, it's difficult to see um, if somebody doesn't stop him before. And like now, SpaceX, for instance, and I, I'll use JeffX because of sure. whatever company I don't want to besmirch anybody uh, but companies like that now have so many government contracts that are are keeping them going that there really is some reason why we would listen and we're not going to go completely rogue in this situation but say a company say Jeff X wanted to launch rockets and land, land on the asteroids and Jeff X had the resources to do that in a way that a small country doesn't have those resources it's hard to see how anybody's going to be able to stop Jeff X from doing it. If it's here in Antarctica and Jeff X opens the operation, well, it becomes a, a lot more, might be an unpleasant situation, but it's easier to see how people end up stopping that activity. Because yeah. at the end of the day, Jeff X doesn't have a military. Countries that have signed on to the treaty do have militaries. Um, but the question of how all of this translates to a, a similar question about space well, I think it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating discussion because we're at the well. We've long since been at the stage where private actors. It's it's hard to see how you prevent private actors from doing anything that they want to do. That that a lot of a cynic would say that our our private companies, our commercial activities, are really our our governing authorities now, and governments are sort of sort of pretending, uh, sort of, they, they deal with the stuff that the corporations don't want to deal to, but when you have your multinational, uh, corporations, uh, that actually want to see something happen, um, a lot of people would say that it's difficult to imagine how that doesn't happen. Yeah. And with companies that not only want something to happen, but like Jeff X mm -hmm. would have a demonstrated ability to make things happen. It's easy to see how, I, I mean, I, I watched Don't Look Up, um, and I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff as sort of a parody when we were talking about uh, mining and, uh, and a multinational corporation being that powerful, because if we're not there already, it, it seems like we're getting fairly close. Right. No, I agree. 
but I don't want to bore the audience because I've had this same exact conversation <laughs> with, with se several guests already. But if again, if this is your first trip into Garden Views, go listen to some of the past episodes on space because I've had this discussion to various degrees of uh, conclusion and, and with other guests, um, ranging from one professor who did not want to play this game at all with me, just was stuck on that, no, the technology isn't there, nobody would ever do such a thing, to others who did want to play the game with me, and, you know, some were saying, well, it's in everyone's business interests, and yes, they have enough ties to the government, uh, but I'm sort of, I think where you're going is when there's that $40 trillion asteroid or that $40 trillion resource that they can get, all of a sudden, the rules go out the window because... The, the GDP of the Earth is $60 trillion, right, right now probably less. Um, so, so once you find the entire, basically the entire GDP of the Earth out there, all of a sudden you're not so beholden to your Earthbound contracts anymore because you, uh, you, you could start your own. Anyway, that, uh, I just said I didn't want to bore everyone with it, and I just did, but it was a shorter version. But, well, no, exactly. I think, and I, I mean, I think that's exactly the question because they, uh, and well, what, whatever happens on space, I think it's a little bit ludicrous to say that the technology is not there because um, I'm not sure anybody knew that SpaceX's technology was here until there was a, a demonstrable show of it being here. That that there's this, I think there's a lag between the way we understand technology and what technology might actually be here because they, like say, I think Antarctica, we use the example of the Ross ice shelf collapsing and there being gold below it. Some some triggering event that causes everybody to rethink these things. Sometimes triggering events can make everything come together in a unified purpose. Sometimes triggering events can splinter everything. So, uh, if you found uh, if you found a part of Antarctica that had rare rare minerals, something really valuable on one nation's territorial claim, I think that would splinter efforts in Antarctica. I think all of a sudden you would have a different look as opposed to triggering activities where you, um, you I, I'm right up, we are both right outside of Baltimore right now. And like Liberty ships during the last uh, century when there was a need for, when the country was going to war, uh, there was this collective effort and it boggles the mind how many Liberty ships were built at, uh, at Sparrows Point in Baltimore and were coming out of there every day. I mean, I forget what the, what the timetable was, but it was the people came together and did something uh, phenomenal. I've, I've been thinking, nobody wants to entertain this thought, um, but I'm waiting with bated breath about uh, what the Webb Space Telescope is going to show us. Um, and I thought that really, if, if we got the pictures back and it showed a barbecue somewhere out the universe and people, people setting, looking up at the sky with coolers in their hands, I think that would be a unifying effort, except for maybe the people who would be a doomsday cult, but it would be a unifying effort that all of a sudden we would realize that our, our, our technical capabilities, that technology was able to be pushed a lot further uh, than where we think technology is today. Well, I'm not sure if you're right about there, but I'm sure about one thing. Because if you had that telescope that saw the barbecue, there'd be somebody's deadbeat uncle there who brings nothing but eats plenty, bumps cigarettes, and takes a lot of to-go stuff home. There's a, and, and it definitely takes a warm plate and plenty of stuff for the rest of the week. There's always that guy. Exactly. All right. Well, I think the good news, though, is that in if there was Jeff X, the bad actor, privately on Antarctica, 
you might have sort of like a the Gulf War situation, the first one in like 1991, where a country, there would be UN sanctions and one country would lead an effort, be it the US or another, and the, you know, the other countries who could lend support, the UN passes the Security Council, passes the, the resolution, or the General Assembly does. I'm not, I mean, they both have to, I'm just not sure in what order. It gets approved and then whatever. Let's just say, let's call Russia the good guys today. Russia leads leads that with you know and maybe you know Norway and your friend Sweden who yeah, you've Norway. been be, Belgium, Belgium be, be, be involved. Belgium and Spain and you know and, and let's go with Uruguay too. They they lead a coalition in there and then and they take Jeff X out. But you know I think on Antarctica that is much more likely to happen than in space because it's a lot harder to get to space and it takes a lot longer and stuff like that. But anyway. Um, any other major points that I didn't ask you about or that you didn't get a chance to talk about? No, I don't think so. I mean, you, one of the things you, you brought up in advance was a question about piracy um, and, oh, yeah. and rogue actors. I think that that's your Jeff X um, situation. Um, there is a lot of piracy, but there's also activity on the uh, sort of the international front to, to curb piracy, but mainly because because of the, it's not just the, we're not just dealing with the signatories to the Marine Life Treaty and not just dealing with signatories to the Antarctic Treaty at that point that that it, there's a violation of international law in a lot of cases that's going on. And so that is a question for, uh, for the UN or that's a question for people um, from countries where these actors are, are acting out of, out of their their ports. Well, anyone can police international waters if they so choose. I mean, there was an effort with the Somalian pirates. But for the record, that's not Jeff X. That's Jeff Beard, the pirate, um, <laughs> which is which is an entirely different thing. Um, there is a commonality there, of course, but nobody can prove that. Um, I thank you very much for for volunteering to do this, taking the time to do this. If you actually are so curious that you look into the other items where the questions weren't answered. We can talk again, and uh, you know, uh, I think the cannabis thing is certainly greenlit. I don't know exactly for when, but you know, it, it's greenlit. And is there anything you want to tell the folks about yourself to promote? I mean, I know I don't think you have a podcast. I don't think you write a book. I, you know, most a lot of my yeah. guests they've got something to sell. Um, nah, I don't really have anything to sell unless people have a uh, legal dispute. If you go to uh, dbllawyers.com and you check out our our blog page, you'll occasionally see a, see a couple of things that I've written, sometimes under duress, sometimes not, <laughs> that uh, we, uh, I think I have one coming out, uh, coming out soon, I don't know when it will be posted, uh, there's one on there about debarment, the one coming out soon is I just wrote something about, uh, um, uh, for people who were wondering whether they can uh, secure intellectual property rights for their cannabis company, trademarks, copyrights, uh, patent rights to sort of talk about that in the lay of the legal land and, and debunk a few myths that are out there about that. But um, outside of that, I, uh, I would encourage anybody who has the opportunity to actually go and see Antarctica before it melts and goes away. It's a, uh, it's a amazing place to go to. Uh, one of those countries that stake territory, the Chileans, they have a base there with a post office and a lot of penguins. Really cool to see. You can go down there and see an albino penguin uh water's cold uh if you decide to go swimming so uh so bundle up 
But um, but outside of that, if I have a book or something in the future, I'll uh, I'll let you know about it. But um, do the other penguins make fun of the penguin for being underdressed or for wearing white after Labor Day? I I, I would imagine. I think I have a picture of that somewhere, and they say albino, but it ends up being a gray penguin. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just sort of gray, so it's like, uh, I don't know. Peng- penguins can be so cruel. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, when you go to a party and everybody's everybody's dressed one way and, and you're dressed the other, it can be a it can be a horrific experience. Yeah, they, they look like, what are you doing? It's after five. What are you, a farmer? Uh, so anyway, yeah. Uh, so, yes, I thank you for all of that. Thank you for, for volunteering again. And, folks, uh, you know, if you ha- don't mind, give us five stars, write a review. Apple and Spotify both uh, allows both of those things. I'm not sure about the other platforms. Tell your friends, tell your family, anyone who might be interested in these types of subjects. And if you have some type of litigation, certainly look at DBL and then look for Ben. We've talked about debunking. We've talked about debarment. We've talked about disbarment. And uh, I think at this point we can, we probably talked about demarcation lines at some point, uh, but if not, it was inferred. So I think at this point we can uh, depart. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Brandon. We will hear you next week. Kids Learning Tube t-shirt or song today at kidslearningtubeshop.com. And don't forget to subscribe. Kids Learning Tube. Southernmost continent in Antarctica is my name. I'm a nice covered landmass, the geographic so cool I do claim. My name is Antarctica, the southern ocean surrounds me. I have emperor penguins and I'm uninhabited virtually. I am Antarctica, I'm classified as a desert because so little moisture falls from the sky, I assert. Typically, I receive two inches of precipitation each year, primarily in the form of snow. Sahara Desert gets more than here. The Antarctic ice sheet covers more than 98% of me. Over 70% of Earth's fresh water is frozen in this ice sheet. Antarctica is the highest continent on our Earth. The average elevation is 8,200 feet for what it's worth. The lowest temperature on Earth was recorded on me, negative 128.6 Fahrenheit in 1983. The geographic self is one of the two points where the Earth's axis of rotation intersects its surface. Around 30 countries maintain about 70 research stations. About 4,000 people live on me in population. On the southernmost continent, Antarctica is my name. I'm a nice covered landmass, the geographic so pole I do claim. My name is Antarctica, the southern ocean surrounds me. I have emperor penguins and I'm uninhabited virtually. There are certain animals that can survive my cold They've adapted over time to exist on me, isn't that bold? There are six different species of penguins found on me The Emperor, Zadeli, Chinstrap, King Gentoo, and Macaroni Only six of the 35 species of seals are found here Ross, Waddell, Crab Eater, Leopard, Fur, and Southern Elephant appear I also have an abundance of whales that visit me Here's a list of the names of whales that I most commonly see There's the right whale, the blue whale, say whale, and the humpback whale The manky whale, the fin whale, the sperm whale, and killer whale do hail I provide a lot of marine food to fill a whale's belly Most whales visit to eat the krill that's in abundance around me I'm the only continent in the entire world that isn't owned by any
country officially I'm a scientific preserve though The world's largest recorded iceberg broke off my Ross Ice shell The iceberg B-15 broke off in 2000, it wasn't stealth I'm the southernmost continent, Antarctica is my name I'm a nice covered landmass, the geographic's so poor I do claim My name is Antarctica, the southern